Welcome back. Welcome back, bookcasers. We hope you're having a good holiday season. This is The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie, and I'm the Charlie part, Charlie Gibson. I'm the Kate part. Happy holidays. I hope you're getting to spend it with friends and family this time of year. It is a blessed season, and you come out of Thanksgiving counting your blessings, and you count them all the way through December as well. This week, we have Mitch Elbaum. If you don't know the name, you do know the book Tuesdays with Maury, which I think, as I mentioned in the conversation, has been read by every single living American. And he's written a new book called The Little Liar, which is a really interesting premise. Well, the genesis of the story is interesting, as he'll explain to you. It's something that he heard about at the Holocaust Museum when he was in Europe. And it's about lying and about the consequences of lies that we tell. It involves an 11-year-old boy who tells a lie that has consequences for him all of his life. When you grow up, the basic lessons that your parents teach you, I think, is truth and honesty good, lying bad. And I think this book is an exploration of the fact that it is really not that simple. Truth is a very complicated thing. And I'm not saying that there is such a thing as an alternative fact. I want to be clear about that. But I think the role of truth and the role of lying is a big gray area and much more complicated than honesty, good, lying, bad. And I think this book explores that through the lens of the Holocaust, which is about the most intense way to look at truth. You possibly probably can look at truth. And it's an intense book. The book spans the years from, I guess, 1936, around there it starts. And it goes on through the 1980s as the principal character really wants to atone or try to atone for a terrible lie that he tells when he's young. Interesting technique that he uses. He uses truth as the narrator, the sort of uh, amorphous truth, the idea of truth is narrating the book. And I think he pulls it off very well. It's, it's not easy to do. It harkened back to me, to Marcus Zusak's book, The Book Thief, where mm-hmm. he had death as the narrator. Mm-hmm. And in this case, Mitch uses truth. And I think it's a very effective device. Again, I think it's a really interesting lens through which to look at truth and lying. It's a slim volume. It's spare, but it's a really interesting way to, I think, of looking at the lies that you tell and the way that the lies that you tell, even when you're a child, affect your future. And forgiveness is also a very big part of this book. How far and how long will you work to be forgiven? And I think his thesis is that there is no end to it. And again, he says that effectively here, I think. Yes. Forgiveness is as big a part of this as truth is. And how we yearn for forgiveness when we do something that is really unconscionable. We want it from others. And the other thing that's impossible for his principal character, Nico, is to forgive himself for having told this lie. The book is The Little Liar. Mitch Albom, well known for writing novels and nonfiction with Tuesdays with Maury. Here's our conversation with Mitch. Mitch Albaum, it is a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. I always enjoyed our conversations when you and I were together on Good Morning America, so it's nice to talk to you in this venue as well. As I read The Little Liar, it would seem uh, that you have written something of a parable. How so? It is a parable. Uh, Charlie and Kate, thanks for having me on. Nice to see both of you. It's a parable about truth and lying. And it was something that I wanted to do for a long time. I actually had an idea to do it 10 years ago when I was at the uh, Holocaust Museum in Israel on a book tour visit. And I saw a video of a woman recounting her experiences during the Holocaust. And she said that we got on the train platforms. We didn't know where the trains were taking us. And they had Jewish people 
telling us it's safe, get on the trains, it's fine, they're going to good places, you're going to get new jobs. And so we believed them, so we got on. And of course, the trains were going to the concentration camps. And this was one of countless lies and tricks that the Nazis used in their destruction and murder of millions and millions and millions of people. And that idea always stayed in my head about, gosh, tricking somebody into lying to their own people. What an awful thing. So I created a story inspired by that, but that centers around a little boy because I really wanted it to be about the loss of innocence. When we tell our first lie, we lose something at that moment that we never get back. And there's an 11-year-old boy whose name is Nico who lives in a Greek city of Thessalonica. And he's never told a lie in his life. And he's 11 years old. All the neighborhood people tease him for being so honest. Then when the Nazis come in, they find out about him and they find out that he doesn't lie. And they decide to use him as a weapon. And so they trick him into saying, look, you can go back to your family. All you got to do is just go on the railroad tracks for a few days and tell the people who are getting on the trains that they're going to new jobs in the north. They're going to go to Poland. They're going to get houses and, and jobs and they'll be together again. And he does this thinking he's telling the truth and why not spread some good news? And then on the very last day of the trains, he sees his own family as well as his little girlfriend, his 11-year-old girlfriend, being pushed into a boxcar and someone yells, they're taking us to die. And he realizes that he's been tricked and he's been lying all this time. And the Nazi who tricked him doesn't let him get on the train. And the train disappears with his whole family and everybody he ever knew and leaves him with the guilt of the first lie he's ever told being the worst lie he's ever going to tell. And it follows from that point for the next 40 years, the ramifications of that single lie on him, on his brother, on the girl and on the Nazi and shows, you know, when we don't value truth, what terrible things can happen and what amazing things can happen in terms of forgiveness. And so ultimately, it's a hopeful book. But truth is obviously a central theme of the book, but truth serves several roles. I mean, truth is too bad that it's an, the truth is an amorphous concept these days, but truth also is personified as your narrator. So yeah. I was wondering, how would you define truth as your narrator? And why did you think it was important that truth be the one who told this story? Well, at the risk of being presumptuous, I'm going to read you a couple paragraphs from it. And I think this will answer your question, because this is basically how the book begins. You can trust the story you're about to hear. You can trust it because I am telling it to you, and I am the only thing in this world you can trust. Some would say you can trust nature, but I disagree. Nature is fickle. Species thrive and then flame out. Others suggest you can trust faith. Which faith, I ask? As for humans, well, humans can be trusted only to watch out for themselves. When threatened, they will destroy anything to survive, especially me. But I am the shadow you cannot outrun, the mirror that holds your final reflection. You may duck my gaze for all your days on earth, but let me assure you, I get the last look. I am truth. And this is a story about a boy who tried to break me. Now, wouldn't you want to read a book that starts like that? I mean, I, you know, a lot of it is just, you know, how do you draw people in and how do you tell a story, a parable about truth and lying from a perspective that, you want to get the reader to sort of be with you and not take the point of view of, well, if you do it in first person, do I like this character or not? Well, that's just his particular take on truth, but that's, you know, it's coming the voices in his head. Do I do it in third person? Well, then you're constantly sort of having to make these declarative 
sentences about truth that feel a little forced, perhaps. But when truth itself is telling the story, it gets to tell you how brokenhearted it is when humankind lies. And when Nico, the little boy, tells this first lie on the railroad tracks, truth actually says, I was there and I witnessed it. And when he told that lie, I wept. You know, I wept like a baby abandoned in the woods. And I thought by turning truth into a a feeling thing, you know, I would get people to think about the concept of it more. And hopefully it worked. At one point, Mitch, truth, your narrator says, well, I'm probably more important than you think. And as I read that, I thought, I wonder if that's wishful thinking on Mitch's part. Well, in today's world, it sure seems like it. We live in a very, very strange time where not only can you no longer believe what you hear half the time, you can't even believe what you see. So we're in a world like that now where, where we don't even know what we can possibly trust. In a world like that, you have an obligation to the truth far more than in a world where you don't have those tools. And so the idea of truth being more important than you think was kind of a tongue in cheek. It's become the most precious and perhaps rarest virtue that we have in today's world. Because truth being something of a moving target these days, did you have the sort of modern application of truth in mind when you wrote that? Well, in all my stories, Charlie, I mean, people have tended, and I guess I've written them that way, to take out something from it and apply it to life, whether I wrote it that way or not. You know, I wrote a book called The Five People You Meet in Heaven. Certainly, uh, (laughs) I actually had Larry King once say to me, you know, like, how'd you do the research for that? You know, I was like, Larry, it's a novel. You know, it's a novel. Oh, okay. But, you know, it was was a parable also. I mean, I've written a number of them about a man who doesn't think he matters and he goes to heaven and meets these five people from his life who show him these little moments that change their life forever. Mm -hmm. And, And it took place during, you know, the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. And, you know, he was an old man by the time he, he went. But yet people have used that book constantly for modern implications about people feeling meaningless, you know. And I would say that I always kind of write with a, a lesson or a theme in mind. I'm a little different probably than a lot of writers that way who just say, look, I've got a great story. I've got a great plot, great characters. That's good enough. That's never, for me, never kind of been enough. I want people to remember it after it's done for something. I want it to be embraced in their own lives. And so my books have always been like, you know, like turkey feathers, I guess. You just you pluck them out and you pluck the thing out and you pluck the lesson out. This book is a parable. So let's get really into a philosophical discussion here about truth. I heard you refer to truth as a virtue. And I found myself after I finished this book asking myself, is truth always a virtue? Is it? Well, not when someone says, do these pants make me look fat? (laughs) Never, you know. When I go out and talk now about the book, which I've just started to do because it was just released, I have some, you know, little videos that I play and things like that. And one of them is from the movie that Ricky Gervais did. I don't know if you ever saw it called The Invention of Lying, which is a very clever concept. He creates a world where there is no such thing as lying. And so everybody tells the truth all the time. And he's on a date and the woman on the date takes a phone call from her mother and you just hear her side of the conversation. She says, yeah, I'm with him right now. No, he's not good looking at all. No, kind of bad. <laughs> no. Uh, oh, no, I won't be sleeping with him. Absolutely not. You know, and, 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 the, you know. and so, yes, in a world like that, truth is not a virtue all the time. A lot of authors, Mitch, have told us that the first sentence 
is so important that people have short attention spans these days and you have to suck them in right at the beginning. Did you have that in mind when you wrote the beginning of The Little Liar? Because I certainly thought that's what you were doing. So it's a really interesting question, Charlie, particularly for me, because I came out of the journalism world and the column writing world. And that absolutely is the philosophy for column writing. Because, you know, people are reading a newspaper and they're picking and choosing what they want. And I always felt in my columns, if I didn't grab them in the first paragraph, that I was going to lose them and I wouldn't be able to hold them. And I would spend forever thinking about how to start a column. When I wrote Tuesdays with Maury and I sat down to write it, I kept sending in first pages and I kept reworking them and reworking them and reworking them. And finally, my editor said, why, why, why are you like killing yourself over this? And I said, because if I don't get them on the first page, they're not going to read the book. And he said, listen, this isn't a newspaper column. They'll give you like <laughs> 10 pages. You know, it's not, you don't have to worry about the first paragraph, you know, the way that you do. And I was torturing myself over it. So ever since then, I thought, okay, you don't get a paragraph you get 10 pages. So what do you want to do in those 10 pages? But I definitely come from that school of get them, get them early. So journalists are extra obsessive about the way it opens. Yes. I still remember, uh, Charlie, you probably, you know, you probably had a moment like this in early in your career or whatever. But my first book was a collection of my columns for the Detroit Free Press. And, you know, every now and then they package them together and they make a book out of it. And it was like, five years worth of my columns, the best sports columns that I had written. And it came out. And of course, it was just local, you know, here in Detroit. And they sent me to a bookstore. And I sat at a desk in the bookstore for an hour with nobody coming up to me whatsoever. I just sat there. And it is the most uncomfortable feeling. You're trying to like, you know, people are walking past and you're like, I'm, 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 you know, you, you, you're working on the desk. Like, you know, I'm just here to clean the desk, uh, you know, scratch out. The, you're trying to come up with stuff to do. And finally, this woman walks up to me with a big smile on her face and she comes right up. I think, oh, thank God, somebody to talk to when she's going to buy my book. And she says, hi. And I said, hi. And she said, where are the cookbooks? <laughs> and so... I have that in my head whenever I go anywhere or whenever I write anything. I still live in fear that there won't be a single person interested in reading it. Aspiring writers everywhere take note. The insecurity never goes away. So really think about whether or not this is what you want to do when you grow up. <laughs> your book left me, I hate to go back to philosophy, but your book left me with some philosophical questions. I want to go back to truth as a narrator. Once you decided the truth was your narrator, I would imagine one of the basic things you had to decide was the way that truth felt about humanity. How does truth feel about humanity? Other than that we're always out for ourselves, how does truth feel about humanity? And is that ultimately changed in the book? Well, there's a parable that I was told and I included in the book, which I think sort of answers that. The parable goes that when God decided to create the world, he gathered all the angels together to decide if creating man was a good idea or not. And all the angels mostly thought it was a great idea. The angel of mercy says, yes, let man be created because he will be merciful. Angel of righteousness says, let man be created because he will do righteous acts. Only the angel of truth said, no, do not let man be created because man will be false and tell lies. And God 
listens to all of them, and then takes truth and casts it out of heaven and throws it down to earth. Now, there are many interpretations from that parable as to why God did that. In my view, God did it so that truth would smash into billions of pieces, and each piece would go inside a human heart, and there it would live or it would die. In other words, truth truth has no empirical existence by itself. It's only if we exercise. If we all just lie, there is no truth. You know, there, I mean, there's truth is like someone watching from 100,000 feet above. But otherwise, if we're not sharing it and we're not telling it to one, it doesn't exist. So it is within our heart. And we have to either nurture it or we have to ignore it. And I think that that's, that's how truth feels about human beings. It's, it's like I'm more powerful than anything because I get the final look. But on the other hand, you control me the whole time that you're on earth. Until that very end moment when you die, I want people to sort of think about that. And B, what were the ramifications of it? Who was hurt? You know, did a marriage fall apart? Did a business break? Did you lose a friendship? You know, was a reputation stain? And C, what would you do to be forgiven? Because mm-hmm. I don't want people to get the wrong idea about the book. You called it Charlie a Holocaust, but, but it really, it isn't, it isn't, it isn't. Because it, it takes place, starts in 1936, but it ends in the 80s. And it mm-hmm. goes through, you know, 40 plus years of showing the ramifications of the lies from the Holocaust. And, of course, the big thing is Nico wants to be forgiven. You know, he wants to be forgiven for the lie that he was tricked into telling. And Fanny, the little girl who survives the horrors of the war, she's, I mean, she goes through all kinds of things, but she manages to live. And she is driven by the need to forgive him. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we don't talk about very often. When we talk about forgiveness, we talk about people saying, I want to be forgiven. We go into confession booths, please forgive me. We don't talk about the human need to forgive which is just as strong as the need to be forgiven. And Fanny wanders the world searching for him. And unfortunately, he's become this pathological liar, you know, which is the consequence of telling a lie that has such ramifications. He doesn't want to speak the truth anymore. He doesn't think he deserves it. And of course, because he's a brazen liar, he becomes enormously successful, you know, which is, <laughs> which is just how it always works. And he becomes like this reclusive millionaire living out in California, financing movies, but never going to see them, which is perfect. Nico does spend the last two-thirds of the book trying to atone for his lie. I noted twice there is the same line in your book, a man to be forgiven will do anything. You use it twice, and I thought that's a really interesting device, but explain what you meant and how you felt that is such a central tenet to the book. A man to be forgiven will do anything, and it is true. I've witnessed it. When you write Tuesdays with Maury, for the better or worse, you become everybody's rabbi, you know, and everyone wants to tell you stories about end of life and moments of grieving and people they've lost. And I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, you know, I hadn't talked to my father for 20 years, you know, and I finally got there just before he died and and I forgave him for what he did or he forgave me for what I did. And it's compelling inside of us the need to be forgiven if we've done something wrong. The last question I have for you, as you say, you've written this story, it jumps around in different timelines. I'm interested in what your order was. I mean, did you write everything out linearly and then mix it up? What was your process like for writing The Little Liar once you decided on on a narrator and a parable? You know, Kate, I, I tend to sort of know how I want to start a book and know how I want to finish it. 
I kind of know what my ending is. And, you know, you've read the book, so you know the ending is a bit of a shocker. And uh, I don't want to give it away in any way. But I kind of knew all along that that's where I was going with it. And that becomes like a North Star that you can sail towards. But like in sailing, you can get off course and still see the North Star. And so once I know where I'm going to begin and once I know where I'm going to end, I allow myself to sort of sail in the middle without big outlines or drawings or things like that and kind of say, all right, as long as I'm heading in that direction, and it's just sort of the dominoes just sort of fall in place. You know, I didn't really have like, let's do this timeline or let's let's do that. I knew I was going to cover 40 years. And I've learned over the years that the best way to tell a long story is just straight. You can get tricky. And I tried when I was younger, you know, okay, let's begin in the middle. I'm going to jump to the present and then we'll go back to the past. And it just confuses people. You have to kind of tell people, okay, we're going to the past now. Otherwise, people get lost. And when a a book like this, I just started in 1936 and I ended in 1983. And that's the way life is lived, a straight line. And that's the way people understand books best. Well, Mitch Albom, it is a pleasure to talk to you. I always enjoyed it when you were with us on Good Morning America. It's fun to talk to you here. And The Little Liar is interesting, I think, for someone who has read Mitch Albom's books. It is interesting how it is sort of a natural progression from some of the things that you have written in the past. Indeed, I think if people don't recognize the Mitch Albom name, you just have to tell them, well, he wrote Tuesdays with Maury, which, of course, the Guinness Book of Records has attested has been read by every single American. (laughs) And it was a bestseller for a million weeks. But it is interesting how it fits in, I think, to the progression of your books. The Little Liar is the book in, in better bookstores everywhere, as they say. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid fire questions for Mitch Album. You write the words, the end. What is your finishing ritual? What is the first thing you do? Uh, I go have some ice cream, <laughs> which I don't, don't usually eat more than once a year. And go have some ice cream and say, we're done. How do you know you're done? When my editor says, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's five o'clock and I want to go home. 
Send it. <laughs> Do you begin to think that any more tinkering may hurt it? Charlie, I am the king of tinkerers. I once chased a manuscript to the actual printing press and was literally scratching things off <laughs> as, as they were putting the thing. And I was changing some words at the end. I, I physically did this. Um, <laughs> as a newspaper columnist, you know, you have your 8 o'clock deadline, your 10 o'clock deadline, your 12 o'clock, your 2 o'clock and I have always, as a sports writer, for, you know, which I don't do that much anymore, but I was trained that way, you had to refile all the time. You had to write the early column, then the one when the game immediately ended, then one when you got your quotes, then later. So I am used to writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, rewriting, and I do that with my stuff, and it drives my editor crazy. <laughs> and she finally has to say, pencils down. You can't touch it anymore. We're shipping it to the printer. And I go, well, what's the printer's address? <laughs> That's what she knows. I'm troubled. So, yes, I believe uh, tinkering is uh, – I tinker and tinker and tinker all the time. Most influential book in your life? That I wrote or that I read? Read. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I can answer that two different ways. Probably Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. Mm. I think that that is a work of art. And I can't tell you how many times I read that book, how many lines I have underlined underneath it, because it's not an easy book to read. It's about faith, and it's an old preacher telling the story of his life to uh, his very young son. But it talks about subjects that I like to talk about. It talks about faith. It talks about inspiration. It talks about death. It talks about important things in life, but it does it with such elegance that I hold it up as like something to aspire to. If I weren't a writer, I would be... Oh, a musician, a music producer. I mean, that's, that's all I ever really wanted to be. I, I'm a writer by accident. I fell <laughs> into it. I was. I never wrote a word in high school or college or anything for, you know, I just wanted to be a musician. And I just played music and I just wrote songs. And that's what I did when I got out of college. And I went to New York and I was a starving songwriter and, you know, musician for several years. And I just happened to volunteer at a local newspaper that they gave out in, in, at the supermarket. And when I first saw my first byline, I got that little tingle in my stomach like, wow, I created that, you know, and, uh, and there it is. And it hooked me. But I love the idea that you're calling your mother to relieve the stress of saying, Mom, I'm going to be a musician. You call her up and you say, Mom, I'm not going to be a musician. She goes, oh, thank God. Mom, I'm going to be a writer. Yeah, ah! yeah. it's actually my dad. And um, I recall exactly what he said because he was very patient through my three or four years as, as a musician, which he hated, <laughs> uh, wanting me to go to law school. And he said, um, a writer, that's the fire to the frying pan. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Mitch, faith is such a part of all the books you've written. Do you believe in God? I do. That's a rapid fire question? That's a rapid fire question. I think that many cases that ought to be a short answer you yeah. know yeah. if you start qualifying it it's not really belief is it no mitch Albom, thank you very much thank you so much my pleasure i enjoyed it you know it's interesting for me to talk to mitch because i had a chance to talk to him a number of times when i was hosting good morning america but he was then this was some years ago I've worked for a long time. Uh, <laughs> this was some years ago when he was a sports writer for the Detroit Free Press. And he was a very good sports writer. People may remember him from the ESPN show that I thought was wonderful called The Sports Reporters. I think Tuesdays with Maury changed his life mm. and put him into the realm of writing books, mm -hmm. which he has done very successfully. And I think will do so uh, with a little liar. Really good sports writer and a very interesting author of 
novels. I think it's really interesting that you bring up sports because one thing that our listeners at home will not experience is the fact that you and Mitch had a very long conversation before we even got started about how Michigan was doing this year because he is a Michigan native and they're having an interesting year. And so that was a long preamble to our conversation that connected very much on sports. And it leads us right into our independent bookstore this week, which is in Michigan, as a matter of fact. Gross Point, Michigan. It's Flyleaf Books. Flyleaf Books, and it's a cafe as well, as so many bookstores are now. A woman named Lindsay Scallon has started the bookstore and managing the bookstore for her is a woman named Lonnie Martin. We talked to the two of them. It is a beautiful Yeah, it's bookstore. one of the prettiest bookstores I've ever seen. It's one of those bookstores where I would just pack a suitcase. I mean, they say they don't kick people out. Well, heck, then, if they're not cooking people out and I moved to Gross Point, Michigan, I'm moving in. Because that's, <laughs> they serve amazing, it looks like they serve amazing food, great drinks, and their space looks as inviting as heck. I mean, it just looks, it just looks beautiful. And do you know what the flyleaf is in a book? I was wrong. I didn't know. You will find out in our conversation with Lindsay and with Lonnie. Flyleaf Books, Gross Point, Michigan, Kershavel Avenue. Here's our conversation. Lindsay Scanlon, Lonnie Martin of the Flyleaf Bookstore. It's great to have you with us. You're relatively new. And Lindsay, looking at your website, you have designed and put together a sumptuous Yeah bookstore. For those folks at home who have not seen your website yet, I wonder if you wouldn't mind describing the atmosphere, the sort of, I think of it as a a masterpiece theater bookstore with a lot of comfy seats, but you break down what your aesthetic is. Immediately when you walk in, you will, it, it has a very cozy feel. It's all wood panels, wood herringbone floors, cozy jewel tone colors that I wanted to work off of all the wood. Um, We have book light sconces over every bookshelf just, you know, to help with all the lighting. So it doesn't necessarily feel like you're walking into a commercial space at all. There was actually a time when I was not even sure I was going to go through with it because I started the project in 2019 and then uh, we tore the building down and then COVID hit. I was also going through a divorce simultaneously. And um, there was a time when I was like, "Hmm, maybe this is not the right time to be doing this project. (laughs) Um, And all my friends and family were like, no, you're doing this. But my concern about your story is as a reader, when I look at your website, I want to pack up all my suitcases and just come and live in your store. We did in the very beginning, make it a policy never to kick anyone out. And so that is also why we don't have reservations in the evening for our evening service is because we don't know how long people are going to want to stay. And to your point, they do want to stay in a cozy environment. You know, so maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad for business, but that's been our policy. And so far, it's been working. Yeah. How do you start with a bookstore in a place like Gross Point? How do you get the word out? Just take about four years for construction and like in a (laughs) highly uh, trafficked area with scaffolding up and newspaper articles coming out. And we had people walking in when we when it was finished, but we were doing training and and still finishing up like all the, you know, decorating and all. people would just walk in 
Um, <laughs> and and then we would be like, well, we're not open yet. And they're like, I know. We just want to just actually see it done, <laughs> like once and for all. And gross pointers, you know, it's a small community. Everyone loves to read. Everyone likes a, a nice new spot. And I think the anticipation definitely right. helps. But the fact that there aren't any other bookstores around, we have a children's bookstore and we have a used bookstore. But there aren't any other bookstores around it unless you go to Detroit. And that's a little bit of a hike. What are you, as the holiday season approaches, what are you putting in Gross Pointer's hands when they come in right now? What are you most excited about? Lindsay really loves the giftable books. So this is her season for books. It's, you know, the cookbooks. It's the art books. And people love to gift those as well. You know, the hardcover, the humor, the cute little cutesy books as a stocking stuffer. So we're really excited to showcase some of those. I wonder how many people know what a flyleaf is. It's an interesting name for the store. And I, I had a misconception of what it is. What, what's a flyleaf? The flyleaf is the blank page in the beginning and or end of a book. So I didn't know what it was either until I started this marketing and trying to figure out what her name was going to be. And you know, I had no idea. And at first, I didn't really care for it as the name of the store. But then it kind of grew on me because, again, at the time, everything in my life was changing. And I loved that it was a white blank page. And without being cheesy, you know, a new chapter, and I get to write it and move forward in a different way. Flyleaf Books, Lindsay and Lonnie, thank you so much. If you go in in Gross Point, Michigan, it sounds like Lindsay will be your elf and help you get ready for the holiday season. And if you're ever looking for me and I'm not at home, you can't reach me. I may just be plopped in a jewel tone chair in the wood paneled amazingness of Flyleaf Books. You can find it at what, 92 Kershaval Avenue? Yep. In Gross Point, is that right? Correct. All right, go look for it because you're going to find a very comfortable bookstore. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and congratulations on your amazing opening. What an incredible store. Best to both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lindsay Scallon and Lonnie Martin of Flyleaf Books in Gross Point, Michigan. And I love on their website, they advertise great coffee, delightful fare, boozy libations, and a carefully curated selection of books. You notice the books come forth? Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, sometimes the delightful fare and the boozy libations make a bad book better. So there you go. <laughs> well, if your store is called Flyleaf Books, you know that books rate highly. And it is a beautiful bookstore if you take a look at it. And now a reminder about the folks who make this podcast possible. And I really want to take a moment to wish them a happy holiday because they gave me the greatest job in the world. And so I'm very thankful for all of them. And I just wanted to say that. And I'm very thankful for all the listeners. Mom, thanks a lot. No, I'm just kidding. Very thankful to all the listeners. If you want to leave us a Christmas gift, please feel free to go on the Apple Podcast app and leave us a review or any app where you get your podcast. Please, that would be a great Christmas gift for us. We're so thankful to all of you and to the authors who appeared this year. So without further ado, our credits and a coda from Mitch. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with Sure Can Productions. Asal Asanapur is our producer. Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America, and Josh Cohan, 
Nania McLean, Vika Aronson, and Brenda Salinas Baker at ABC Audio. I was once criticized by a reviewer who dismissed me by saying, he's just the king of hope. And I can actually think of no better throne to be sitting on. I always wanted to say to that guy, you know, I don't think you realized what a compliment you just paid me. Um, I believe hope is the most beautiful word in the English language. And if that's my uh, epitaph, then uh, I'm happy to have it. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.